Welcome to Enhanced Therapy Podcast. My name is Derek Davda, and I'm here with the New York psychologist Ingmar Gorman. Hi, Ingmar. Hi. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm, I'm so happy to, uh, to have you here. We are today, we're going to be talking about the study. And I'm not even, I'm not even joking because I think you'd, you'd agree that the study we'll be talking about is uh, the most important psychedelic assisted study to date. And, and why it's important is because it's the FDA approval research. It's the research that will legalize MDMA assisted psychotherapy. So first of all, you know, who thought that MDMA, uh, a love drug MDMA would make it to the FDA approval process? For one thing, it's uh, considered a counterculture drug. So somehow, somehow uh, it's considered incompatible with this um, beautifully structured American uh, exploitive American system. But also there is no money in MDMA because you use MDMA once twice, three times, and, and then you're done. But not only did MDMA make it to the FDA approval process, but after some initial research, MDMA-assisted therapy was granted breakthrough status for the, for the treatment of, of, of trauma. And this is not, uh, not an ordinary thing. Uh, it's a very rare designation. Essentially, breakthrough status means that MDMA-assisted therapy shows a greater promise for treatment of trauma than anything else out there. So lots of people get uh, got excited. Lots of people are talking about the upcoming revolution in mental health. Uh, and it's not just a bunch of hippies getting excited here. We are talking about numbers. And numbers is what I hope we will be, we will be talking about uh, today. In in the past, there was only one other drug uh, for trauma that was up, uh, that was granted that breakthrough status, and that drug on a subsequent subsequent research, the third uh, phase of it, FDA approval research flopped, and it went nowhere. Uh, and now, so now uh, the world was watching. Uh, MDMA-assisted therapy is going to the third phase of research, and you, Ingmar Gorman. You were one of the principal investigators in this research, and um, and here you will be talking about this uh, this study. Just just to give a little bit of a of a background, uh, Ingmar is uh, is sort of like when you look at your work, you can see that your work is guided by the light of compassion. I'd say you worked oh, with you. you worked with uh, harm reduction, which is helping people who use drugs to uh, to minimize harm and you also have been working in integration therapy which is f uh, for those people who use drugs uh, to help them both minimize harm and maximize the benefits of uh, for these drugs psychedelics that uh, have therapeutic have, have this therapeutic potential so here we go here's a Drum roll, <laughs> and here is Ingmar Gorman. Thank you. Give us, uh, give, give us a little bit of a background. Tell us about the the study, the results. Well, sure. I mean, I think you you mentioned quite a lot there. Um, there's a lot to go into greater detail about. So, one thing I might say is, 
you know, you have mentioned trauma and it's helpful to be really specific um, because you know, the studies that we're looking at are with reference to um, post-traumatic stress disorder. Right. And so it's important to acknowledge that trauma can have all sorts of impact that don't necessarily lead to just PTSD. PTSD is one particular kind of consequence of trauma. And so when we're talking about MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, so far we're talking about the treatment of and, and phase three specifically, we're talking about the treatment of PTSD. And so, um, yeah, maybe a good place to start is just how does a drug become a medicine? And that's this uh, sequence of phases that that you had had mentioned. And so, um, kind of the full sequence, you actually begin with preclinical research. So that's where we're looking at animal studies. So not in, in humans because we're evaluating the potential risk and it would be too risky not knowing the effects of um, a particular compound and then if it looks like there's safety in in animals or non-human animals we move to phase one studies and those are usually um, with healthy volunteers it's, it's actually not true that they have to be healthy volunteers you could do a clinical you could work with a population um, with a diagnosis at phase one but most groups choose not to because you, it's so early on, you don't necessarily want to skew the data in a, any kind of way. And so the point of the phase one study, just to quickly mention, is really to just look at safety. Again, is it tolerable in, in, um, and safe in humans? And then you go to phase two. And phase two is where you're looking at a small sample, so usually around 20 participants, to see if there's a signal. So you're selecting an indication, in this case PTSD, and you want to see if um, in a small group, still monitoring safety, very important. Um, but is there some signal that might tell us that this drug may be helpful for a particular diagnosis? Right. It's helpful to maybe pause here to say just the timeline, right? That up to a few years ago, well, um, phase three with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, I believe was launched 2017 ish 2017 2018 um and so up to that point that it was all phase two research and in mm -hmm. fact all other psychedelic research at this point because you're they're now they're the nonprofits and for-profit organizations companies that are beginning to study a whole range of psychedelics and most of them are in the preclinical phase one or at most phase two stage and so one, you had mentioned like the study, like this is the study. And mm -hmm. one reason you might call it the study is because it's uh, of all of the psychedelic assisted psychotherapy research, MDMA is the furthest along. Mm -hmm. It's now in phase three. And so the publication of the a paper this spring was the results of the first half of phase three. So we are halfway through right now, um, FDA phase three research with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for post-traumatic stress disorder. And why? what is phase three? Well, phase three is where you scale up further. You go from several small studies with 20 participants to um, one or two studies with, in this case, 200 or 300 participants. And so you're continuing to mod monitor. Is that signal that you detected at phase two still there? And maybe a for your listeners who are totally unfamiliar with this work, it's important to say that during phase two, we we did find a signal for for uh, MDMA assisted psychotherapy helping uh, 
PTSD as measured by the CAPS, which is the Clinician's Administered PTSD Scale. So that's like the gold standard measure. And so um, this was a big question, right? Like could, as you had alluded to another uh, drug trial, when you go from phase two to phase three, as you scale up, there's a big question. Like, are you going to be able to replicate the findings? The findings from phase two, the effect sizes there were like around 0.9, 1.2, even I believe even uh, higher, depending on the the study. And these are these are huge effect sizes. So yeah. if we just yes. you know, I think for the, for our discussion, further discussion, it will be useful to explain just tiny bit about the statistics because the effect sizes yeah. is the most it's the most interesting actually number here. People also yes. talk about statistical significance, right. which is kind of the ability of the data statistical yeah. significance is just is this is this really for sure uh yes it's for sure but effect sizes is essentially how big is this effect it's helpful to explain like what is statistical significance and so in the case of the clinical trial you know you're comparing a placebo and an intervention or two interventions and you're looking to see whether the intervention that you're making so in this case mdma uh, therapy whether that is going to have some sort of effect, there's going to be some sort of impact that is uh, not the consequence of random chance, right. right? But the thing is, as you increase the number of participants in a study, you uh, are more likely to get a significant difference with a, a smaller effect. So minimal different difference type. can exactly. be considered statistically significant. Thank right. you. That is the, that is precisely the succinct way to say it. So why is this all important as in comparison to what we're talking about, which is that there's something called a measure of effect size. And what this does is it takes into account statistical uh, significance, but it's also telling you, like, is this a meaningful difference? Is it a difference of like the difference between 58 and 60? <laughs> or, yeah. is, or is it the difference between one group scoring five and the other group scoring 95, right? right. And so the usual range of effect size is between, say, 0 and 1. 0.3 is considered to a, a be a small effect, and 0.7 or 8 to 1 and above is a strong effect. Yeah. And this is why with the previous uh, studies for phase 2, the uh, the outcome of the effect size being like 1 is that's huge. a strong finding. Huge. A strong finding. But a small sample and, size, so people say, well, it's a small sample size. It's not sure whether it's stable. Right, whether right. whether that's going to happen again, just like with this other drug, they had effects. They were granted uh, the the breakthrough status, and then, well, they didn't replicate the effect because the once the more stable, larger sample size came, the effect disappeared. Maybe I'll say that for phase three, for the first half in this paper that was just published in. Um, in the spring, which I was a co-author on, uh, what we did was that we were able to replicate the findings that were from phase two, right. which is very, very important for some nuanced reasons, right? I'll say one very nuanced reason is that what, what the, we should talk about MAPS, which is the, the sponsoring organization, which is a nonprofit, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which makes right. this all, all possible. They also right. train the therapists. There was a, there's a big risk here. In the early phase two studies, there were about 10 or 15 therapists. Then what MAPS did is they did another phase two study where they trained up about 80 therapists in MDMA therapy. And there was an open label study. What open label means is that there's no placebo, 
the participant, the therapists, everybody knows that they're getting MDMA. And when they did that, they were able to re- continue to replicate the findings of the, of the 15 therapists approximately, which is that that was a big risk. To go to say, we're going to actually increase the number of therapists dramatically, go from 15 to eight or 10 to 80, and try to replicate it. You, it could have been therapist factors that were contributing mm-hmm. to the change. And what's important is that even when you went up to that number, the change was retained. Mm-hmm. And then the next step was to go to phase three, where now you introduce blinding. So the same therapists are doing the therapy, mm-hmm. but now the therapists and the participants don't know who is and who isn't getting MDMA. And then that data was published and we replicated it. And that, that's just that's crucially important because as you progress through the phases, you're basically getting closer and closer to the real world. And then the last thing that I'll say about phases is that um, there's phase four. And people forget about phase four. So the end of phase three... Uh, the FDA will evaluate that data and they can make a decision about whether a drug can become a prescribed medicine. So that's very important. But people often stop there and think, okay, great, it's a prescribed medicine. But phase four is essentially ongoing review and oversight uh, and collecting data about how the treatment uh, is being used in the real world, outside of the lab, but in doctor's offices or psychotherapists' clinics. And um, that's a very important phase because then you relinquish control to some degree when it goes to the community. And there's a big question about what happens then. Does it still work? Because that's something that you observe with other pharmaceutical interventions, that over a period of several years, it's this phenomenon. An antidepressant, if it shows to have some effect one year after being approved, it should still continue to be effective 10 years after it's approved. But for whatever reason, we observe that antidepressants can actually lose their effectiveness over time in the population, not just like within a single person. So the phase four is coming up after, after, afterwards, after phase, phase three. three. And just yeah. to say that we estimate that phase three would be like around, Rick Dalbin talks about 2023, 2024 approval, potential 2023. approval. 2023. Yeah. So, so then we have the phase three study right now that just got published Mm. everybody's very excited about the results tell us a little bit about the study so essentially i don't have the exact numbers but you know we're talking about uh, somewhere around 80 participants again i think the sites were somewhere around 12 or 13 sites so that means you know sites across the united states uh i believe there's a site in canada and israel as well um so we're talking about somewhat you know, similar cultures, but geographically diverse at least. And so we were able to replicate the findings. Uh, so let's talk about the, the main finding is reduction in PTSD symptoms. And the interesting thing here is that the total reported effect size was 0.09 mm-hmm. in terms of MDMA's yep. impact. So we're talking about a strong effect. One thing that we haven't done, which I'm happy to do, is talk about effect size of comparable therapies, just so that you all can have that in mind. So the VA lists the top three psychotherapy interventions for PTSD. That's prolonged exposure, cognitive processing therapy, and um, EMDR. And their effect sizes range from 0.7 to about 0.9. So we're talking about, you know, similar effect sizes as what we've seen in um, some other psychotherapies. But there's a, so there's a little nuance to this though which is that in that paper that was published, there's a paragraph later on 
in which the authors describe uh, how that 0.09 was arrived at. And what that 0.09 is, is an attempt to get at the effect of MDMA alone without psychotherapy. So just for all of our listeners who might be completely new to this world, just to recap it briefly, that in these psychedelic therapies and MDMA therapy specifically, no one is getting the MDMA uh, alone without the accompanied psychotherapy. So they're, they're, get, they're on MDMA, they get MDMA three times over the course of three or four months, and there are psychotherapy sessions that prepare a person, there are psychotherapy sessions that happen, or psychotherapy happens while a person is on the MDMA, and then there are the psychotherapy integration se sessions that happen afterwards, where there's a processing of what came up and supporting ongoing change. The control group there's that control receives... Group. Psychotherapy, psychotherapy only but, without know, MDMA. So one group is psychotherapy and MDMA. The other is only psychotherapy. Okay. That's right. The therapy is exactly the same, except there's no MDMA. Yeah. In the scientific review pop process of this um, article, there's conversation that goes back and forth between the researchers and reviewers about like how should data be reported. And what was arrived at was that the paper should report the effect of the drug alone without the psychotherapy. And so your you might your listeners might be thinking, well, how's that possible? Because there is no condition under which MDMA is Without given therapy, alone. Yeah. It's always right. accompanied yeah. with psychotherapy. So it's a it's a it's a that 0.09 is sort of artificial. What they basically did was they subtracted the effect size of uh, the psychotherapy from the MDMA plus mm -hmm. psychotherapy. And so the so so the actual effect size of MDMA therapy is 2.1. Right. So it's actually very Humongous. large. It's actually tw it's actually twice that of the, the current best treatments. But what was really reported on in that paper was just right. the effect size of the drug. So this is, you know, this is a really an important moment to stop at. I think, you know, just just to clarify these effect sizes for people because the the best treatments out there, as far as we know, and you mentioned the VA has uh, is there is uh, for 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 trauma, is cognitive processing therapy, prolonged exposure therapy, EMDR, the treatments that have been studied the most, and the effect sizes are about 0.7 to 0.9. Now, let's let's just go back a little bit. Effect sizes. About 0.2 means small effect size, about 0.5 is medium effect size, about 0.8 is considered a large effect size. So these are actually fairly effective treatments, 0.7 to 0.9. Now, when that compares to MDMA-assisted therapy, if you use the same methodology that they use to derive the effect sizes, the effect sizes for this particular study is over 2 2.1 you said which yeah. is humongous yeah. this is this is a very yeah. very very big effect size you know there's there are different variables for us to consider like yes there's the effect of it of an intervention but there's also a, what are the longitudinal benefits right. of it does a person's symptoms come back after 6 months mm -hmm. or a year or is it long term mm -hmm. change with the mdma research it does seem that it's longer. There's actually two papers published on longitudinal follow-ups. The first one that was published in, I think, 2011 or 2013, the first long-term follow-up showed that on average 45 months later, people still retained the, the benefits. So it's multi-years. Mm.
The other thing is, what kind of population are you working? So this is all this all goes down to the nuances of study design, right? So like, so if I wanted to, so for example, single incident trauma, where there was a single traumatic event that caused PTSD, uh, compared to complex PTSD, where or, or complex trauma, where a person has PTSD but they experienced uh, repeated traumatic exposure, particularly during the developmental years, tends to be more chronic, more, more severe, treatment yeah. resistant. So it depends on how you set your study up and who you're treating. You can get different effect sizes depending on how um, challenging of a population mm -hmm. that you're working with. Um, some other nuances of that paper, though, um, was one interesting thing was the question about dissociation. Mm -hmm. And this to me is really fascinating. So PTSD in the DSM has a subtype called uh, the, dis the dissociative subtype. If people have a dissociative subtype, it means that one of their symptom presentations is that they have a tendency to dissociate. And what dissociation is, is actually really complicated to measure or observe. It essentially can be thought of as a way of es escaping uh, a, the present moment or a particular traumatic stimulus. And that can be something like emotional avoidance and numbing, but it can also be as extreme as um, sort of uh, losing a, awareness of where a person is for a, a given amount of time. Like they're not sort of reachable uh, by somebody who's near them. If you were to talk to them, they're not actually registering the input. There was a big question, how does MDMA affect people who have a tendency to disso dissociate? And uh, anecdotally, what was being observed by uh, the therapist during phase two, that they, that they were observing participants who were on MDMA, that they were, t they were dissociating more. Like they were getting a blank stare, they're sort of mm -hmm. looking to the distance. We were interested in knowing, uh, is, it, is it the case that the pharmacology of MDMA is contributing to increased dissociation? And is that in, impacting whether people get better or not? In other words, if a person has the dissociative subtype, does that mean that they are not going to improve so much on their PTSD symptom reduction? And what this recently published paper identified is that uh, that was not the case. So people who have the dissociative subtype do benefit just as well as people that do not have the dissociative subtype mm -hmm. on PTSD. They can benefit equally. Now, I'm very interested, if you increase that sample yeah. size to like 1,000 yeah. people or 500 people, could you actually see that the people who had the dissociative subtype benefited even mm -hmm. more from the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy than the people who do not have the dissociative subtype? Right dissociation is difficult to treat because in itself it's uh, it's a mechanism of protection from pain traumatic pain so uh, people do do it automatically so when you engage in a traditional exposure treatment with for therapy all those all those therapies that you mentioned uh, mainstream uh, treatments uh, involve exposure and and that's precisely for the dissociated type those kinds of treatments are sometimes counterindicated because they can trigger dissociation, which is not uh, something you want uh, to trigger because the, the, you don't get the results that you want uh, that exposure well, provides typically. Even, right. And well, no, you, the, the person can't engage in the therapeutic process if they're not if they're, they're they're dissociated. dissociated if they're not. So, and you know, if you think about the phenomenology, the experience of MDMA, what it does, it kind of makes sense that dissociation yes. would decrease, right? Right, right. We don't use this analogy much as much, but it's still, I think, somewhat relevant, which is this notion of the optimal therapeutic window of, of yeah. arousal. Uh, 
And so, you know, imagine you, ha- you can do psychotherapy and a person is ne- neither hyper aroused or hypo aroused, yeah. meaning that they're kind of in this state where their physiology is enabling them to still be engaged in a conversation and process memories and be connected to you. But if you kind of ex- too quickly or if you improperly kind of introduce discussion about the yeah. trauma, their body physiologically relax, re- reacts, not yeah, relax, the quite the opposite, yeah. reacts, re- reacts, and um, then they can have, then they can potentially dissociate or not engage with you or just be right. overwhelmed. And so the, the one of the early thoughts about MDMA, which I think is still appropriate, is that what it does is it kind of opens up that therapeutic window a little bit so that a person can still... Um, be engaged with you, but not be totally overwhelmed. And not just engaged with you as a therapist, but engaged with themselves and their mm-hmm. own memories and emotions yeah. and feelings. Yeah. yeah. No, that's a really good point. That's great. That's very exciting, you know, because uh, this is a very difficult uh, kind of subtype of, uh, of of trauma with dissociative symptoms. You have to work very carefully. And there's a lot of talk when you treat people that have dissociative tendencies, then you work on the more basic stuff like coping and strengthening you actually work on strengthening the defenses uh what else about the study Ingmar? well one other piece of it which is unclear like my again i'm not with the dissociative dissociative piece i feel like again i don't want to say what's real or what's not but because of the data it's not quite there yet but it's there's like a to me there's a strong signal in in that direction that there's something here about dissociation Another finding that is sort of a um, little bit more um, unclear is this question about previous history of SSRI use. And so there's a study that was published, I think, in 2020 by Ali Fiducia, where she looked at the phase two data and looked at people who had a history of SSRI use and who were titrated off of SSRIs prior to uh, receiving MDMA in the clinical trials. And what she identified was that uh, people who had a history of SSRI use, uh, they still benefited from the MDMA treatment, but they didn't benefit as much as the people who never uh, used SSRIs. Mm -hmm. And so what this is alluding to, and this is a little bit outside of my scope, but recently there has been more attention towards the effect of long-term SSRI use on the brain and potential sort of long-term changes to the brain that occur even after the SSRIs are stopped. Mm. And so what we do know is that if you, you shouldn't combine SSRIs and MDMA, but if you do, um, what that does is it, it blunts the effect. Yeah. Of the and MDMA. all the people in, in MAPS uh, research have been weaned off SSRIs if they were on SSRIs in yes. phase two as well, phase two and phase three, right? Yes. Phase two, but phase what two. you're saying is yes. that even if they used SSRIs prior to being in MDMA therapy, that there are still potentially some lingering effects. Yeah, that's right. And, and, uh, and just for the listeners' clarification, this is even after five half-lives of the of the the drug. After. So what you do is when you mm-hmm. taper off, so it's not like they just stopped SSRIs and next day got MDMA. I and mean, this is even after the the period in which uh, the drug should be outside of a person's system. Uh, How long is system. that? Um, uh, five times yeah. the half-life. And so the half-life depends on what, and then this is outside oh, of my yeah. scope, but it depends okay. on the medication. Okay. Um, but for some, it can be quite, for some SSRIs, it can be quite okay. long. Um, you know, sometimes we're talking about like, months, months okay. or, or weeks okay. to, to months. Okay. Um, 
So, but here's, the, but here's the other thing. So that was the phase two results. That's what Ali published. But in the phase three data, they looked at the same variable, um, history of SSRI use. And what they, they did not replicate Ali's finding. Oh, okay. So that, in, in other words, uh, there was no significant difference between the group mm. that had a history of SSRI use and the one that didn't. Oh. Okay. in terms of their outcomes on, on PTSD, so uh, in MDMA treatment. So SSRIs, is it make it, does it make treatment a little bit less effective or not? I would say we really yeah. don't know. It could go one yeah. way or the other. And since you're talking about SSRIs, uh, do you know the, the statistical sort of statistics about the effect sizes of SSRIs for trauma more or less? I know this is not, a, there's no clean for data PTSD. for PTSD rather. Yeah, I've looked at, there was a meta-analysis that I looked at it. It put it at about point, point, uh, point 0.3. Point 0.3. So, so here's so, just to remind so people small. again, small effect sizes yeah. for SSRIs, right? Comparing to, this is point 0.3 comparing to the effect size of 2 humongous yeah, humongous that's, that's like nine was that almost nine nine times? ten times it's it's, ten. it's huge it's like uh yeah it's yeah uh or maybe seven times longer yeah. uh no, five yeah, yeah. it's yeah. a it's a lot it's many times great. larger great so um, that's a, that's another so, very interesting little thing to well it's and it also has to do with the nature of ptsd right like so what those again i'm not a doctor psychiatrist but um what those what we know about typical pharmacology is that it's good at, at symptom suppression. And that's not a, like a, I'm not, that's not a value judgment. I mean, what it does is it, it sort of in various ways decreases the kind of hypoarousal. It may sometimes lift, I guess it may lift mood in the case of antidepressants. What the, what the current available drugs do for PTSD is address the symptoms, but not the trauma really. It's there to address some of the symptoms. And, and, and also, all. yeah, exactly what you're saying, that when you talk about SSRIs, it's the kind of a numbing process. It's a, it's it's not a healing drug. It's a it's a kind of a numbing drug. It gives you a bit less intensity in terms of emotion, your emotions. That's generally, yeah. I think, a fair way of looking at it. So people feel, yeah, I feel, I feel less anxious. Fine, you know, but I also feel less connected with the world, maybe. And and in contrast, what everybody's talking with MDMA-assisted therapy, which again, let's repeat, you do MDMA once, twice, maybe three times, and you're done, is healing. We're talking about changes that, you know, we have this research, a lot of now quite a bit of research, still preliminary, we still have to be careful with uh, generalizing this, all of this, but really the numbers are so huge and... And the promise and the, you know, and the results a year later are amazing and all that. So we are actually talking about healing. And unless the data shows otherwise, I don't think, like I personally don't think we need to be shy to, to say that, that this is very different. And also, to be honest, you cannot, uh, you know, if you look at things like SSRI, you cannot look at that without looking at the incentives that uh, pharmaceutical companies have. To make those SSRIs, I know this is old news, you know, but old news still has to be repeated that a daily use of a drug, that's a lot of, we're talking about a lot of money, a lot of money these companies are making. In contrast, MDMA-assisted therapy, there is no money in MDMA. MDMA is a cheap drug, too cheap to produce, and again, you do it once, two, three times. I mean, there's a larger... 
conversation to be had about access to the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy treatment and the the financial burden. Then it goes comes it's some the therapists need to be paid, and there's a lot of therapist hours, right. and that increases the the, the right. price of it. And so it's like that's another problem. It's a big it's a big problem. Let, let, let's let's talk about it in a moment. Let's finish the study. Do you have okay. any other sure. things you want to throw into about the study? There's a couple of uh, other things, like sites, for example, that sure. there's apparently, mm. there was 15 sites, and when they analyzed the difference between the sites, uh-huh. there was no difference. Yeah. There's more right, more right. or less the same yeah. results, yeah? I, I, you know, I feel, okay, I feel less excited about okay. that finding, but here's my, here's, my, here's my kind of like concern about that finding. I hope it's true, right? Like, I hope it's true that there aren't any differences, and there aren't any differences as the analysis suggests um but you're, you know we're talking about such small sample we're talking about 15 oh, yeah. sites and we're talking about like oh. what like two to yeah, five right. okay. participants yeah. at each site and so when you do an anal- a statistical analysis on that you're I not going to find differences through. okay yes let's not get excited about <laughs> that just yet. good good <laughs> there's there's an issue of um, alcohol abuse history of alcohol abuse uh, history of substance abuse and history of childhood trauma. So it might be the same idea that they didn't find much difference. Maybe we don't need yeah. to get excited about that either. But yeah, I would be cautious about yeah. the interpretation. But I think that that's like, I guess, for some reason, intuitively makes yeah. sense to me. But I think when you scale up, there are going to be some variables there. I think like things like character pathology, certain, you know, uh, personality disorder traits, um, I think uh, the kind the big one uh, for me is really the environment that a person is returning to post-treatment in terms of being able to retain the benefits. One thing that I think is important really for safety is whether a person, and this goes, this is true if you're in a clinical trial or if you're going to underground psychedelic therapy, or if you're going to Peru or whatever, if you're having any kind of psychedelic experiences with the intention, well, period, but particularly with the intention to heal, um, really like who, who do you have in your community? Do you have a friend? Yeah. Do you have a family member that, 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 trusts you, believes in you, supports you in this? Do you have some sort of stable economic, relatively stable economic mm-hmm. situation? Um, you don't need to you know, hit all, all of these things. Do you have internal resources like a hobby or playing yeah. music or sports or something? Like there are these different variables. And if they're all very n- not yeah. present, you don't have to have all of them. But if you have none, you're, you're in for a rough right. time. And, and that I think is going to explain could explain some of um, the differences in people's outcomes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We need to make this world a better place, generally, overall. The therapy itself will not solve our right. problems. We have crisis, we have economic crisis, we have environmental crisis, we have crisis of poverty and poor wealth distribution and all that stuff. So therapy itself is not going to solve all these problems. And if you put, if the person... Sadly. sadly I, I wish yeah, could. Well, I mean, you know... I, <laughs> To, to push therapy well, it goes against the push therapy on people of, who have a horrible lives mm-hmm. and there's you know that's not the thing to do and I mean you know it more than anybody else because you've worked in these in these circumstances hey but I I, t- I totally uh, would love to talk to you about all those bigger issues one more maybe thing that we need to cover about the study is just the safety profile do you have anything to say about that that's a good question is this therapy safe I mean I would say that it's safe in the sense of how it was conducted in the, in yes. the trials meaning being very careful around screening of who's allowed to be in the study and who's not. And I mean, just to give some 
pointers here, like I think one of the biggest risks is around uncontrolled hypertension. So that if, again, I'm not a doctor, but um, if a person really has, as a form of harm reduction, if a person has high uh, blood pressure that's not controlled and um, you introduce MDMA, there, there's an increased likelihood of, of um, a cardiac, cardiovascular event. Um, we're talking about, you know, one way to think about MDMA is that it increases your heart rate to what is might be equivalent to like a vigorous vigorous mm -hmm. exercise that can be handled by many right. people vigorous exercise they engage in on a daily basis but for those people who um don't uh who may not be able right. to handle it um it, it can it can be really dangerous and then there's some psychiatric co uh, contraindications but to be honest we don't really understand them mm -hmm. very very well and they're probably going to be sort of an avenue for future research but in the past published studies, what you often find is uh, people who have a manic uh, his history of mania, bipolar disorder, or history of history of psychosis. Those are particular contraindications. But I would say, like, rather than looking at DSM diagnoses, another way to look at it is, I think there are things that we don't yet fully understand that can be predictive or helpful in terms of a person's suitability for this treatment. In terms of where they are in their life, again, what kind of resources that they have available to them, mm -hmm. and whether they're prepared to go into a process that might be, you know, the one misconception about psychedelic therapies generally is that like, oh, you take this like drug and then yeah. you get better, but in fact, it's much more like, it can be like that, but very often it's you take the drug, you're in therapy, it brings stuff up, it's uncomfortable. There's there's a lot of um, discomfort that a person goes through in the process, which we think isn't just a side effect of the drug, but rather a person engaging with this, the psychological material that has been so difficult for them mm -hmm. to connect with. Or in the cases of psilocybin, I really like the phrase that I heard from Roland Griffiths, which is the concept of ontological mm -hmm. shock, which is happens less in MDMA, I would say, though not strictly, I don't know, that's not a scientific empirical observation, but just that the mystical experience that psilocybin tends to engender can really change a person's core values about how they believe the world works, how the, their own personal values, perhaps even their relationship to a uh, higher power, if you want to use that language. I mean, it depends on the person the, and their values, but they can be, you know, they can, sh they can shift significantly. Yeah. And that can be really disorienting yeah. for people. And it can be a challenge yeah. to navigate. Yeah, yeah, and 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 since we are at it, uh, you uh, mm. as a part of the training with Maps, uh, did you did you do MDMA? Did you do MDMA assisted therapy? I Could did. you? I did. I received. I received. You MDMA. received MDMA. Could you tell us about the experience, just firsthand human experience of the MDMA from your point of view? Yeah. Um, what, one of my biggest take-home messages from that was how, and people have, have made this observation, but it became true for me, was um, how important, the how I was able to let go when it comes to knowing that, okay, this MDMA is 100% okay MDMA. It's not black market. There's absolutely zero likelihood of it being adulterated in some way. The people who I'm with are well-trained. They can handle whatever comes up for me. Uh, and I'm safe. Like just that amount of safety for me, um, for anybody, I think allows for a surrendering to the experience, which can be um, 
a key component of a mm. psychedelic treatment, like the, the depth that a person can go into. I would be also honest with you. I think for me, I was in a very strange place in my life when I had that. Okay. That was in 2018. Okay. And I was, I think I was just about to get married. I, um, a, I was uh, a co I was selected to be a co-principal investigator on the mm. study on the, of the MDMA study. So this was this new responsibility. I was on my way out of um, being a PhD student. I just finished my uh, internship, um, and then there were some other personal things going on um, on my above and beyond that. So I was What's in going on? this. I had wait. I was like so. My, so my session was. For me, it, 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 I think it was all over the place because I was all over the place. Uh, it wasn't. It, it wasn't like a, you know. But I'll tell you one thing that came from it that was actually very profound for me was the, was actually the placebo session. In some ways, the placebo session for me was more powerful than the okay. MBA session. So, so, so uh, you know, in this, in this, so the, in this, this was called MT one. So in this. Um, it's really a FDA study. It was, a, it was a, a safety study in which the participants of this study were all therapists, yeah. and they were all given MDMA to help them be better MDMA therapists. Um, and this is often for just as a side note, right? This is often forgotten. So, MT two is the second version of the study that I was a participant in that is now going to be starting up again, in which therapists are given. MDMA. It's really, really, really important that this is not like an, this is not technically a therapist training study. This is the, this is a study in which healthy humans are given MDMA, um, and they just happen to be therapists um, because the FDA would not necessarily like, you know, you, there's only certain things you can get approval for, um, and I think that nuance is important because. We're not at politically. We're not at that stage yet in this country where we can give people psychedelics for training yeah. experiences. Uh, Canada might be a different story, but wasn't um, there some sort of um, an FDA uh, that maps won some sort of a, a legal dispute with FDA recently that will right. actually allow the therapist to no. to use MDMA no. in training? No, no. where, where no, did I that's hear the that? Well, because there was a there was a dispute with the FDA about whether this MT two study this very the second version of the study that I was in could proceed. Could proceed. Ah. So so you heard it. It, it was it, there was like a the announcement was yay maps can give MDMA to therapists okay. again, but there still isn't a study where the explicit purpose of the study is to train therapists by giving them psychedelics. Oh, okay. That has not been approved yet. So just to get back to my yeah. experience, so, so this is a, it's a study. And so it's a, and it's a placebo controlled study. So my MDMA experience. So what you do is we come in, we have a prep session for one day. Then we have a psych, a, a dosing session in which I could either get MDMA or placebo. Then we have an integration session. And then we have another dosing day where MDMA, I can either get well, which, which yeah, whenever yeah, I didn't yeah. guess, whichever I didn't get the first time. The order for me, just, just by pure chance, was that I got the MDMA first. Okay. I had the experience that I described to you. And then I had the integration session. And then I had the, um, the, uh, the other dosing session. A month later or something placebo. like that? No, no, no. Two, Two days, days later. later. Oh, okay. Two days later. That's, and that's a very important difference because, you know, you're, I'm still under the, the effect like, of MDMA. 
the effects of the MDMA, like not, and just again, to our listeners, it's not like the MDMA lasts that long, but you know, there's, there's this period of sensitivity. Some people have an afterglow that's mm-hmm. positive. Some people feel more emotionally vulnerable or, or down. And so I remember during my placebo session, um, still kind of under the impact of the, the MDMA, I um, could really, I, I was, things were very quiet mm. for me um, internally, externally. And I was sort of tapping into my internal experience and what I found there was a sadness, mm. like a mm. deep sadness that wasn't really connected to anything specifically. Like it wasn't like I was thinking about something sad that happened. It was just this sadness. And um, I was tapping into it. And um, I think I even remember, remember the th- one of the therapists at one point putting his hand on my, my chest and just crying and weeping and trying to understand like, what is it? What is this? What is this sadness? like that I'm feeling. And um, the place that I arrived at was that um, we all have, I believe, you know, we all have this capacity to feel, well, the the whole span of emotions, happiness or sadness, and including those. And that for me, there is a kind of core sadness that's inside me that's not always there, but it's a part of me and that I can access. And that um, for me, it's very important for me in terms of how I relate to my patients as a therapist, that it's my access point, it's my entry point in some ways into my empathy, into my relate, my, my connection to others. And not just to, to patients, but to, to, uh, to anyone in the world. And that it's a, sort of an important part of me that I actually cherish and really, really appreciate. Um, and that I don't need to do anything to it. I don't need to like erase it or fill in the hole, but that's just a little bit of sadness mm-hmm. that I kind of carry. That's, that's just a part yeah. of who I am, but I think, and I think part of everyone. Yeah, I can. Yeah. 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 That's beautiful. It's beautiful. I can definitely resonate with that. Yeah. It's uh, this experience that when you allow it, from my point of view, when you allow it, it's not a it's not a negative experience of any sort. It's actually, you know, a quite a quite a nice experience if you just completely allow it. Yeah, and I think that's the key word you said, allow it. You know, I think for many of us, myself included, you know, sometimes it's hard for us to allow it, allow to feel it, allow it to be, because we think we have to like do something to it or get. Or rid even of it. you know, in within. Um, clinical psychology and psychiatry sadness is often confused with depression and which i think it's a it's a it's a big mistake because depression to me is a depletion of our system Mm. sadness has nothing to do with depletion sadness has to do with Mm. everything around us if you look at the losses and things that happen to us and things that are happening to other people things that are happening to all living forms on this planet Anyway, there's a lot of reasons to feel sad and it doesn't have to be a, a negative experience and it doesn't have to be overwhelming either. It can be just like a weeping, you know, that's nice. So the placebo, but the, see, the placebo then was totally affected by MDMA as well for you because it was two days later. Right. If they did it a month apart, I don't yeah. think it, I would have had that experience. I'm yeah. certain I wouldn't have. Gold Dolan, you know her, right? Yes, yeah, you interviewed and her, Gold right? Dolan, uh, actually, she's talking about, uh, about uh, she estimates that MDMA will have 
a physiological effect for about a month after, a little bit of an afterglow. And one of the, uh, that people might not feel anymore, but that there is actual, you know, actual effect. And and she was, actually, when I talked to her, one of the uh, implications for that that she uh, suggested is that we should, as clinicians, take a look at uh, when clinicians do MDMA uh, themselves in, a, in training, shouldn't they take a break for at least a month afterwards before they do become therapists, you know, so they are not in mm. that way kind of influenced by their own process, mm. MDMA uh, kind of related process. So that's just a kind of a, an interesting no, idea I, to throw into the whole ethical yeah. sort of basket, you know, that we're dealing with here. Well, I think that we're not having enough conversations about um, the ethics of psychedelic therapist training. If you look at the history so like back at the 60s and 70s, uh, when they were trying to create guidelines for psycho psychedelic therapy yeah. training, you can look at them. Um, they're sometimes established by different societies. And it kind of looked a little bit more like psychoanalytic training in the sense that like, you had to have five experiences of your own with uh, a experienced psychedelic therapist. So you're going in your, you're in your own therapeutic process with them. And then you had to have like 30 supervised uh, psychedelic therapy sessions with five different uh, clients or patients. And it was a, it was a longer term mm -hmm. process, but you know, the, the issue is today it's, it's, it's tough, right? Because if you demand that kind of process, for trained yeah. therapists, the, the accessibility oh, yeah. is going to be terrible because it's it's really expensive. It's going to take yeah. a lot of time. People need these treatments now. They need to be mm -hmm. able to afford it. And so you can't do that. You can't require that of everybody. On the other hand, what you do see now are, you know, week-long psychedelic psychotherapy trainings where, you know, the therapists come in, they get, uh, you know, maybe two or three out of the five or seven days they get um, a, a, usually a ketamine experience if we're talking about something that's legal and in the yeah. United States. And uh, well, what's happening there, right? Like you have these people who are going through, the trainees are going through emotionally expansive, intense experiences of vulnerability in the presence of a teacher and often being supported by somebody else who's in training. They're all trainees. They're just switching roles. So I go first, I get the ketamine, somebody sits for me, and then I switch with them. And it's, it's efficient. And I don't, and I'm not knocking it purely because I want to knock it. Um, I think it, it can be educational for sure. But this is basically what I'm bringing up is the dual role nature or the multiple roles that are happening here. Um, the thing about, say, this kind of training in a psychoanalytic institute, and I'm not an analyst, yeah. but what I know is that you know, the training anal your the person that is treating you in psychoanalysis is not the person who's teaching mm. your class, right? Like there are distinctions between yeah. the roles. And and we talk about set and setting. So like what is it like for a person? And I've I've seen this happen to people where they're at a training and well, stuff gets activated for them because they're opened up by the ketamine and then they are like processing it with somebody who's kind of like evaluating yeah, them or yeah, teaching see them. what you're saying it's 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 yeah it's messy. a little bit messy because it's a new it's sort of a new institution that psychoanalysis has been an established institution and all that stuff 
and they have figured out their ways of doing things that you know that that's safeguard for these kinds of problems of dual dual roles and all that so yeah yeah i see what you're saying yeah 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 it's a, a still a little bit of a hippie approach yeah <laughs> yeah it's sort of like yeah, maybe a little bit less boundary yeah. but um and this is the friction yeah. right like um but but there are ways i think to solve this right like you have distinct places or um, like there's a container for the psychedelic experience for the trainee mm -hmm. that is uh, separate, but, in, but um, somehow connected to the training right. kind of organize it in a way that maximizes kind of safety and, and trust right. and security. Yeah. yeah. So separate people doing training and separate people doing the clinical, clinical work of that sort. Are the current uh, uh, MAPS is currently doing the first uh, batch of training, uh, 300 yeah. people, huge, huge, huge yes. amount of therapists uh, being trained. Are they, uh, are they, do they have an opportunity to do, to do MDMA during training or no? So one of their, one of the like prerequisites of the um, training is that they have to have an experiential yeah. component. You can, I believe, st state and demonstrate that you've had a previous experience that um, will kind of count satisfy as the requirement. requirement yeah. Satis thank you, yeah. satisfy. But um, if you don't, you don't have to do that. Uh, you can decide to to have an experience, and the experience is holotropic breathwork or another one that you. So there's no opportunity for, for MDMA, uh, MDMA uh, therapy. Except for that MT2 study, which was just now, right? They won that legal case, so it's oh. going to proceed. But it can but, proceed know, within MT2, the realm of, uh, of training, of MAPS training, or they might blend it into the training. Well, no, those, so this is the thing, right? The, ther the MAPS could select oh. those oh, trainees okay. to, to okay. get the MDMA okay. and be in the study. For so anybody but, signing up you know, for MAPS about... training, there is a small chance that you might get a chance <laughs> to taste the actual experience during the training. The list of people who want to participate in that like MT1, MT2 study is quite long. <laughs> and there's, you know, basically there are 80 ther some therapists that well, can allow why, MT1 or MT, MT2 to that? happen. But they're also juggling. And so that's like me. That's like, that's our site, yeah. right? Like say, say our yeah. site in New York, like we, we can volunteer to be an MT2 site where we uh, facilitate yeah. these psychedelic, these MDMA experiences for the trainees. But we're also juggling, you know, phase three. The, we're trying right. to do phase three and we're trying to do a, the, what's oh, called the crossover study. I had a chance study, that you're a very busy people, man. Anyway. So we're, we're like, not just me, Everybody. but all, like all of the therapists who's, who's done, who's how, of the 80 who's already done the work. This? How are you handling like, this? Like oh. personally, this growth, this expansion, explosion mm -hmm. of, of, you know, of interest and research and everything. And It's nothing like anything I've ever experienced in my whole life. It's like sometimes dizzying how rapidly things are moving in the field Scientifically, I can't keep up with the papers that are being published, and in the industry, just the amount of money that's basically coming in to, uh, you know, to various incentivized actors. <laughs> well, I mean, with you know, with Fluence, with my company, the training company, and being involved in all of these studies and things like that. The analogy that I came up with is like, you know, it's like you're out in the ocean and you are on an island, and you, and we built like a, a surfboard for us out of okay. like. You know, some, some a tree, and we're and we're like we're like we caught this wave, and it was like a two foot wave, and now it's like a you know like a oh, twenty no. foot Hawaii. wave, and we're and we're trying to like we're trying to like upgrade the uh, yeah we're trying to upgrade the the uh, oh, no. surfboard into like a rowboat and a yacht, and like you're trying to like get yourself situated 
and ready to continue to be prepared for this right. giant wave as you're widening the wave and as the wave is the wave is getting bigger. The wave so is big, getting that's kind bigger of what it's very like. fast, very fast. Within a year, the difference within a year is incredible. <laughs> Do you think there's any any risk that this whole ship will crash? It's a good question. I feel confident that it won't crash. Yeah. I think that there's enough data, science, uh, enough diversity of you know, for-profit and non-profit companies that have various initiatives that right. are going forward. The 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 culture around it, even like liberals, everybody is on board. Yeah. So I listened to Michael Pollan's interview on Tim Ferriss uh, yesterday, actually, and he mentioned something that I've been thinking about for a long time. Michael Pollan said something like, "You know, the challenge for us is going to be how to understand how to relate to these, have a relationship with these substances, you know, after they're mm -hmm. approved." Like the 10, 20, 30 years yeah. down the line, that I that I am more like, I guess you could say concerned about. Um, and what are your concerns? You know, here's well, here's an ex here's an example, totally very minute, small example. That's probably one of like hundreds of thousands of of sort of questions or issues. Say we live in a world where psychedelic psychotherapy is accessible. And you can go to your therapist. I think, of course, all within the therapy context because that's where my head is in. Um, so you go to your therapist and your therapist has training and they have the power or capacity to say, I think it's time that we, as part of our regular psychotherapy practice, I think we should have a psychedelic session. Oh. I think that's kind of a good thing, right? I think a lot of people would like to have, they don't want to go to somebody else to have their psychedelic experience. Like if they have a therapist, it's kind of weird that they go and have this like really intimate, vulnerable experience with some, like another professional. And then they like go back to their primary therapist. So hopefully that's one problem. Hopefully we'll have a world where therapists are trained in the way where they can have ongoing psycho individual psychotherapy and have the ability to also have a psychedelic session with the patient um, in the context of that longer-term relationship. But here's, the, here's another problem. When is the right time to suggest that a person have another, a patient have another experience? Like that's a very delicate, is the therapist, are they having yeah, influence? Yeah. Like are they, like who's, who has the We're power about there? The powerful drugs with right. powerful effects, right. which might be right. positive, but even in, in their positivity, these drugs sometimes change lives radically. They might break relationships. Yeah. And that's just one little sliver of a decision yeah, yeah. being made. And I think like if you just imagine a world where psychedelic assisted therapy and psych and maybe even psychedelics, uh, like what we're seeing in with the decriminalization of nature and these things, like I think we're going to find ourselves encountering new questions that we've never had to, to really navigate right. before. Yeah, we should. I'm, I'm cautious to celebrate yeah, yeah. too early. It's a very new paradigm. There's a lot of questions and a lot of things to right. figure out. It's a... This is a new paradigm for obvious reasons that a medic, a very powerful psychoactive medication is used together with therapy. That's never been the case before. We have, you know, you go to your psychiatrist, you get your meds, you go, if you want those, you go to your therapist, you get therapy. But it's never been that the yeah. therapy is structured around the properties of the medication, actually. Maybe one other thing that's kind of interesting, this another future problem, is I, I to, in my eyes, I think that the different professional yeah. societies meaning like professions like psychologists like, uh, psychologists yeah. social workers psychiatrists i think they're all sleeping i'm waiting for the turf war to start because we had a turf war before 
with psychiatrists and psychologists that I think had some really devastating impacts on ultimately affected us, uh, the professionals, yeah. but also the patients around who can do what, yeah. who can administer what. And like in New York City, uh, a psychologist cannot hire a, uh, an MD. Illegal. It's prohibited. The you can't create a company. By the, by the state. state. Okay. By the state. So, and that's because of old turf wars around who can medicate, who cannot medicate, and who can own what uh, of the responsibilities around these different kinds of scope mm -hmm. of practice. I hope it doesn't happen, but it's going to happen where around psychedelics, because it does involve psychotherapy, it does involve yeah. medicine. The beauty of it is that it's an interdisciplinary thing. It could include acupuncturists and massage therapists and body workers. And the therapist number one, FDA required that it, it be PhD or MD. And apparently I heard very recently that MAPS has won the case that it doesn't have to be, that it can be an MA therapist that is therapist number one. That's correct. But I'll tell you, MAPS has changed. Like we're not, um, the languaging around MAPS is, it's no longer MDMA assisted psychotherapy. It's MDMA assisted therapy. therapy. Okay. So the, so the psycho okay. part has been taken out, which like I feel mixed about. What, that, what does that mean? Well, that means that it's not emphasizing a psychotherapeutic mm -hmm. process. It is emphasizing a therapeutic one. So that kind of diminishes the role of psychotherapists. Mm. That's, I don't quite oh, like yeah. that. On the other hand, the upside to that is that it allows people maybe to be facilitators or sitter, yeah. whatever you want to have them. I think call them facilitators, if you will, yeah. that don't necessarily have psychotherapy training. So that increases yeah. the access to in it, a, which is like yeah. a good thing. Maybe. Well, this is so a this is the tricky thing. The access, which you know, uh, definitely, I wanna I wanna hear your opinion on because it's so complex. And then there is the the quality of care and the safety and all that. So you wouldn't want yeah. somebody with very little training to be to be leading this kind of therapy. But then, what do you do with access? Because yeah. the costs I, of this therapy I do think are humongous. Not because of the MDMA, but because of the therapy, because of the three people involved. Because right. the dosing sessions are uh, eight hours long, and there's three of them, maybe. We don't need three. We can do one. We can do two. But Yeah, I mean, I think that the number of sessions that are going to be, be ultimately helpful is going to vary depending yeah. on the person. There are definitely people who only need one. There's some people who only need who need three. There's some people who need five. There are probably some people who are going to need more, depending on like what's going on for them. Yeah. And I agree with you. I like the conservative approach that you start off with a little bit more restriction and then you can open it up over time. But th this does get at an interesting question around um, who, what makes mm. a good psychotherapist? Mm. What makes a good therapist? Mm -hmm. What makes a good facilitator? And people have all sorts of ans questions yeah. or answers to that question. You know, some people in the psychedelic community think it's the prerequisite is that you have to have a psychedelic experience. And I actually don't, I mean, we could, that's a longer conversation, but I don't, I don't think that that's suffi sufficient. And I don't think that they would say it's sufficient either, but I don't think it's good to communicate that like the primary important piece is whether you have had a psychedelic experience or not in order to be a psychedelic therapist. I think there are more important traits. And I think that those lately, my thinking has been around you know, a person's, a therapist's or person's capacity to listen, to be receptive, to engender trust in the relationship with the other person, to be aware of their own mm -hmm. filtration process, like basically much more about mm -hmm. the therapeutic relationship and to be able to have that kind of connection with somebody. And that's why I think you have therapists who have that capacity who can be remarkably effective and then you have some therapists that kind of don't have that 
capacity and may not be so effective mm -hmm. maybe for certain people. And it's maybe why you have certain people who are not therapeutically trained, but probably still could be really great MDMA facilitators. Well, there's, there, there's a lot of different models that could happen here. And the question of access, this yeah. is one of the most important questions of, of, of mm -hmm. providing access to these people. Obviously, people who have money will be in a great position because they can, they can jump and, sure. and, and pay their $8,000 or whatever it's required to, to get this therapy, you know. But what do you think about the future of access and, and, and how to resolve that so that people who yeah. actually needed the most, which usually fall on the lower socioeconomic status yeah. that they receive it. Well, I think it's going to be a combination of, of approaches. Um, so, so here are various ways that people are getting at it. One is like, or you have a mixed, maybe you have a more experienced therapist with a junior yep. or training therapist yep. in the dyad. Um, maybe you do groups, groups instead yes, of individual therapists. Another one is, this is more of the future problem stuff, which is like around mm -hmm. insurance coverage, which there's um, a, an organized um, effort yeah. amongst many people or, or certain people in the psychedelic arena to get insurance coverage or possibly even creating a psychedelic insurance company <laughs> to, to um, help yeah. defray the cost. You know, there was this paper published, I think, a year or two ago. I think it was just last year. Uh, I think at the UCSF, I want to say. It was an economic analysis of money saved for the treatment of PTSD. So See, PTSD as a disorder has enormous health co right. utilization costs associated with it. And it's not just the, the symptoms of the disorder itself or the diagnosis, but it's, for example, people going into emergency rooms much more often because of the dysregulation that they're feeling that they, that's interpreted as a heart attack. You have huge um, hospital costs because of all the screenings that have to be done. And so, that, and that's just, and then not to mention the loss of productivity and these other things. So, if you do the math, what this paper basically demonstrated that if even insurance companies covered the cost, or there was some program to to cover the cost of the treatment, it would pay off in many many times over, in um, again increases in productivity and decreases of of uh, economic cost to the various institutions. So there's that that piece of it, um, and I think it's going to be some combination of of all of the above. The other thing, which, you know, is a little bit sci-fi, but some people are working on it is like the development of novel psychoactive mm. compounds. So maybe you don't have to have, or, or different routes of administration and different, different wet methods, let's say, of turning a psychedelic experience that is eight hours long into maybe like yeah, short four hours long. We have a government healthcare here, so in Canada, for example, so the government could pay for some, oh, well. some of the, oh, you, yeah, you, you, of course. Right. I mean, I'm speaking from, you know, the yeah. American perspective. Yeah. I mean, most of Europe yeah. and I think Canada, I hope, are going to be more well off. Isn't in that it regard. like kind of funny or paradoxical or whatever word you want to use that the most illegal substance, the, the schedule one substance, which is bad, 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 is turning up to be potentially one of the most powerful healing substances with, when combined with psychotherapy. I do think that there is a, a real explosion in research uh, with psychedelics and it's not clear at all what is going to pan out, um, but something's going to pan out. And I think that, you know, one thing that um, my colleague Elizabeth Nielsen had said is that so far, 
and I think maybe we've even talked about this at some point in the past, that uh, so far psychedelics have been thought of as like a last last treatment in the sense that for the death and Psilocybin, people yeah. who are struggling with terminal diagnosis and the chronic yeah. treatment-resistant depression or PTSD. And, you know, we may live in a future where psychedelics might become a first-line treatment, where instead of somebody being on a medication for 10 or 20 years, um, the first attempt might be, well, let's see if psilocybin or MDMA might help. You know, my hope is that for the people who are struggling, that will be a yeah. better world for them. And there's also the aspect of, you know, I was talking to Henrik Jungerberle from uh, Berlin's Mind Institute. Do you know him? He ran, he, mm, yeah, yeah, okay. yes, and, uh, yes. So he was talking. His institute, they are uh, they are strongly advocating for psychedelics to not only be used for treatment of the disease, but also for, in a positive way, kind of positive psychology way. And they they essentially adopt the the, the language of personal growth. They want psychedelics to be available for mm -hmm. personal growth. So they're, what what do you think about that? Yeah, I'm. I mean, I think we have to, you know do things one step at a time. Um, but I, you know, that would be a world that I would like to live in. You know, one of, we haven't mentioned this, but I did a, I have a paper published uh, called MDMA assisted psychotherapy and post-traumatic oh, yeah. growth. And essentially what that's about is that the take home message about it is that although people were, you know, were suffering with PTSD, they had their PTSD symptoms reduced, but they also found more sense, greater sense of spirituality mm. in life greater sense of connection to other people, a greater sense of uh, self-efficacy or sort of believing in a sense of purpose in their life. And so, you know, you don't have, you don't have psychiatry studies that are looking at this. Usually psychiatry studies are like, are you less depressed? Yes. Are you less anxious? And so that to me is a signal, although we are still talking about a, po a clinical population, to me it is a signal that people who are, who don't necessarily meet the criteria for DSM diagnosis can still be mm -hmm. have their life enhanced in some way. Again, it's a new frontier, but you know whether we have a diagnosis or not. I think we are all struggling and battling with various right. uh, issues in our lives, and and uh, and although we are well, um, I think there can definitely be right. an enhancement okay, to wellness. Same with couples therapy. Obviously, there's been a lot of talk about couples oh, therapy yeah. and MDMA. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's great. What do you think about one specific issue? I had the person who runs my uh, regulatory body here email me and say, hey, Derek, so what do you think about the fact that if you do the training now, then, then uh, the therapy won't be approved in uh, two to three years? How do you manage the lag between the training and then actually doing the therapy? Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Right. So, you know, there isn't, there currently isn't any kind of continuing education requirement, but um, MAPS is, think like, not, I want to yeah. be careful how I say this because MAPS has not made in a mm. public statement about it, nor they have, nor do they have a, yeah. they haven't come to a decision, but you're yeah. identifying an issue. And I think they're thinking about like, how can we make sure that people, people retain the skills that they learn yeah. um, over time if they can't practice it until years after. So it's, it's totally a, a concern. For sure. No answers at this point, yeah. though, yeah? At no answers, point. yeah. Anything else, Ingmar, that you'd like to, to add to this? Yeah, well, maybe before I go, I could just make a plug for my uh, yeah. my training company. So I have a company called Fluence, and you can find us at fluencetraining.com. 
it's it's in New York, but we do a lot of tradings online um, or now mm -hmm. with COVID receding, we've traveling around to provide both in-person training or online training. Uh, so far, it's focused on psychedelic integration okay. and harm reduction. So that's, as you had mentioned earlier, um, not administration of right. psychedelics, but working with people who have, right. who are using psychedelics. Um, but we will be um, basically in the next year, very likely going to be launching some psychedelic assisted psychotherapy training nice. programming proper. So uh, I did, so I did a I, course uh, with you two, a year ago, uh, a two day course through Fluence. So I highly recommend that course. That was excellent. Uh, What's well, Fluence, Fluence training .com. Com. Yeah. I know how busy you are. I really appreciate you making time for this. And we will continue and hopefully we can talk again. Yeah. And thank you so much for uh, okay, helping right. me spread the word Great. and inviting Great. me here on your podcast. Right. Thank you Thanks so much. Okay. Take care. Take care.